Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there. Are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit ViralGrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofsetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Hey, Rachel, did you get your flu shot? You know, I did. I got a COVID flu BOGO. How about you? Well, considering the massive rush for COVID tests these days, it's amazing you got in. I personally was afraid of the flu shot rush, so I went back in August. (laughs) Uh, Everyone's so focused on this uh, next wave of COVID, and rightfully so. But there's also concern about typical stuff that happens when the weather turns, cold and flu season. I was at the pharmacy this week, and I still see good in-stock rates for cold and flu meds. So the same seems to be true online. I I do wonder when that's going to turn. Yeah, you know, compared to other categories, pharma seems to have a lockdown on all the data that they need, whether it's weather, historical, other inputs, to really understand what's going to drive cold and flu inventory down to a hyper-local level. Yeah, I would say the D2C marketers have really been leaders in data-driven analytics, but are they as good in e-com? You know, some of the usual suspects like J&J and Bayer, I'm continued to be impressed by how they're approaching data-driven marketing. But you're right. There's this new crop of D2C brands. I think we started to see that first echelon happen in the vitamin space. And it's starting to disrupt these big holding companies. Yeah, it's really Interesting to see the way the traditional OTC versus the D2C, man, full of acronyms today, are are going about it. But today's guess, yes, guess, because we have two. Double feature, Rachel. Big deal. Yes. So today's guests are going to give us very different perspectives. Jeff Smith, in particular, is the former chairman of Johnson & Johnson, but now the founder and partner of Ignite Venture Studios. He's going to talk about his new model to build standalone D2C OTC brands that 
eventually strategics will probably acquire. And Paul from Bayer talks about the role of media here, especially around first party data. So today's episode should not only remind us to take good care of ourselves personally, but improve our e-commerce health too. Jeff, I'm so excited to talk about old and new with you today. Super excited to be here. And thank you both for the opportunity. Jeff, Sarah and I have both been following you since your Johnson and Johnson days. And it's wild. Like you spent 29 years there and you went from a sales manager all the way to the group chairman. How does one pull off that rocket ship trajectory in their career? Well, first off, 29 years doesn't feel like much of a rocket ship when you're in it, but um, it was definitely a journey. So, yeah, I, I, I think um, first and foremost, I mean, when I came out of school, I started uh, my career at Procter & Gamble and spent um, about four years there and then um, made a switch over to J&J. So first and foremost, you know, very lucky to have spent time with two of the most interesting and dynamic and successful CPG companies um, in the world. So there's moments when... Uh, you think you have a career and you're on it and there's moments when you know you're not on it and you've got to find a way to get back on. And so I spent time in both um, sales and marketing roles coming up, took some risks to do some global roles and moved to the U.S. Um, at different points in my career, different opportunities that became really the learning curve and getting myself out of what was I was comfortable doing. I always say that I, I could probably almost sell anything to anybody if I spent my time in practice doing it. But if you spend your whole time focusing on selling, you probably end up with a sales career for the entire time. And that was not really what I wanted. So took risks to go into other things like marketing, to do stuff in in areas of global, you know, supply chain and R and D and activities that were foreign to me, but became part of rounding me out such that not 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 I was an expert, but I was capable of running the general management type of role earlier on in my career. That's pretty exceptional. So you've had this fantastic career. You have now moved on to something else that people may not be as familiar with, but after this podcast, they certainly will be. <laughs> Tell us more about Ignite Venture Studios. Yeah, you know, the Ignite Venture Studio was something that was actually born in uh, myself and my partner's um, heads prior to even leaving our careers. Um, my partner, Josh Geim, is the former head of R&D for J&J's consumer business. Um, we worked closely, obviously, as I was um, company group chairman for the North American business. But, you know, big companies... Um, particularly in that period of 2012 to, I'll call it to today, but where all the growth was in the small, nimble, disruptive business model brands um, that were nipping at their heels. And you've got highly profitable businesses being disrupted by high growth companies that weren't making money that made it very hard to replicate. And, you know, acquisitions were always a way for a big company to bring in growth. But acquisitions, most of them don't succeed, mostly because they don't fit well into a big company. Either they weren't built to be, either the you know the formulations aren't compliant or the business model is not the same. And so most of the big companies spend time trying to figure out how to integrate them. And we we'd spent time trying to create incubation models inside the big companies that only ended up tripping over themselves. And so we, we proposed that we go out on the outside and create a disruptive business model venture studio for large CPG companies that would do it along with, you know, the premise of Ignite Venture Studio is, is we do it with a strategic partner early on. So we're working towards 
exiting to somebody who is interested in the space that we're trying to disrupt. And we do it in a way where we build it with the the formulations, we build it with the partners that they work with today. We make it highly ingestible if they decide that they want to acquire at some point, including things like unit economics, so that when it comes in, it sits. And so that that's what we set out to do in November of 2019. And by the end of uh, the first quarter of 2021, we should have somewhere between seven and nine brands in the marketplace. Wow. You know, you you made a comment that legacy CPG companies are being disrupted by players that are growing but are unprofitable. So is that what prevents a company like J&J, P&G, Unilever from incubating brands is that they put the classic P&L on innovation? Like, What's really preventing these companies from being their own disruptors? Yeah, I, mean, I think it, it probably boils down to that being the most common. I don't know if it's the, I wouldn't say it's the only reason, but it's the one that gets in the way the most, right? So many, many of these companies are, you know, obviously public companies, Wall Street um, quarterly earnings and others that they have to deliver on. And so I, I can take, I can launch a new skincare brand that, you know, even if it looks like it could be successful for the next three to five years, we'll make no money to little money. And in order to do it, I have to take money away from a brand that's already, you know, turning 30 points or more of margin um, that you know, flows right through to the bottom line. And so a dollar moved over, it, it's really hard to justify it when you're trying to deliver um, quarterly or yearly or whatever earnings. And, you know, it's, it's simple to say that that's it. It's not because, I mean, obviously these are massive corporations. I mean, they have money, but it's, it's how, what comes along with that is the mindset of how things get done, the competencies, the people that work there. So it's not even easy to do to break through all the, the layers and the bureaucracy and other pieces of it. So you put the two of them together, it just makes it super hard to execute. I think that's a, that's a great segue, especially given you retired from J&J last year. You're in a much more nimble environment this year. This year is the year e-commerce took off due to more necessity than technological innovation, but we're all sitting here at least being being fortunate enough to be in this space. Knowing what you know from having been at such a large organization in such a senior role as group chairman, what do you think is important for our audience to understand about how huge CPG portfolios approach e-commerce? And what do you think the pitfalls are that they can learn from a yeah, the, the kind of companies and brands you're thinking about. Yeah. And, and there's no question that there are those that, you know, I put in that large group that are, do extremely well. I mean, hard to argue with what Clorox was able to execute. Um, and not just because there was demand for their product, because they were ready on the um, direct-to-commerce, um, you know, model. And so, you know, there's a big piece about being ready um, that, you know, many that were ready are big or small were able to take advantage of change in the marketplace in 2020. Um, you know, but the biggest learning is speed. Um, you know, it's easy when you come into, when people always ask, they go, what are the differences? And it's like, oh, you know, there's going to be less meetings. And when there are meetings, they're going to be more productive. And there's going to be, you know, less about relationships. And you're going to be able to make decisions faster and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, that is true. Those are probably the table stakes of most startups. Um, 
you know, but there are pieces of it that are, that are, I'll call it harder. I mean, it's a lonelier world. You don't have a village of people, you know, to, um, you know, sort of put in motion to try and drive forward. And things that would happen in two or three weeks previously happen in two or three hours or days now, um, which puts an incredible stress on a small team. Um, so you got, you know, it, it's not just like, oh, this is going to be all fun on the other, you know, on the startup side. Um, it, it's hard work in a different way. Um, but I think the benefits of, you know, particularly in today's environment, the opportunity that exists now. Um, as Rachel, you said, um, you know, that, that as, as the landscape has shifted, I mean, you hear whatever data points like, you know, it's moved forward 10 years or whatever it turns out to be. It doesn't, that it's not really even relevant necessarily what it is. It's moved forward. It's really um, freaking fast. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And that, that just requires that you have to have that speed and agility. And that is the pitfall of the large companies is trying to get the machine in a, work from home environment that is used to working together and collaborating to work across hundreds of people instead of five, seven people. Um, it's so much easier on a smaller scale. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. I was talking to someone who's a leader in a spirits category and she's stepped into a role where they have built no infrastructure for e-commerce. And to do that for a multi-billion dollar company, like she doesn't have time on her side. Yep. And um, so- in total agreement. You know, while we all applaud the disruptors, these native digital brands for shaking up things in corporate America, the reality is, is that there hasn't been a D to C play that's achieved multi-billions of dollars as a standalone company within the CPG space. I'm curious your perspective as to why that hasn't happened yet. You know, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it's incredibly hard. It's hard enough to be successful at just one launch in one category. You know, by the time that you prove out your capability being successful there, many of them are sold. They don't get to a place where their vision is to be, you know, the conglomerate of the disruptive new business model across multiple categories. So, you know, there's just a natural factors of, of either something they fail you know, we, we, we rarely talk about the amount of failures that happen. We, we tend to all know the, the great success stories. We, we tend not to talk about those that didn't succeed, and there's many more of them. But even when they get there, it's hard for them to stay independent. There's so much pressure with the, the venture capital markets for customer acquisition and growth that too often they start moving into other products, other segments not by strategy, but by necessity. And the necessity is to acquire more customers um, to keep up with the growth models. And that that becomes difficult to manage. You get to a point where you make mistakes in that and what you originally built as highly successful starts to you get chipped away at. And you know, building a conglomerate or multiple category businesses you know, takes decades or it has taken decades for the big players that are in it. And even in a shortened time schedule now, it's still not going to all happen within two, three years. And so I think the patience part of it is hard. Many of them, you know, are, are, are unprofitable. So moving into another segment when you're unprofitable doesn't make it better. <laughs> it just burns cash more and it requires you to, mm-hmm. you know, spend a disproportionate amount of time raising money versus 
growing the the underlying fundamental base of, of of your company. In tough times and uncertain times, I think people just say, I'm putting my money on A, and I don't need to play around with multiple choices. And I think it just brings us back to our roots of what we know. And big brands get a break every decade or so on that, I find. Absolutely. It, it really is a testament to brands who have been doubling down during the pandemic, particularly the larger ones, because they understand the importance of brand value and brand equity in particular. So if somebody's going to shell out an extra buck or two for your brand, they, they, it's because they feel a degree of comfort or association or trust along, along with that. But, you know, that being said, there's still a lot of movement in newer technologies and newer ways of working that are becoming new habits. I think telemedicine's probably one one of the ones, especially with the surge in demand for mental health for every obvious reason you can think of. Um, telemedicine has certainly been on on the upswing. And so it was recently announced that Hims Inc., the telemedicine and personal care startup, filed to go public through a merger with Oak Tree. What does this signal to you? You know, it signals to me that, uh, you know, there's still lots of room for the growth. I mean, you know, the, the change in where things are going is only just got going. I mean, we talk about telemedicine changing dramatically and the amount of people willing to do it. I think that is true and the numbers would prove that out. I think the experience still has to get dramatically better in order for it to become sustainable 20 years from now. The innovation has to keep happening inside the telemedicine area in order for it to become sustainable for the long period of time. So I think we're really just at the at the forefront of high adoption. You know, the early adopters that were using it were using it out of some form of necessity. They didn't have a doctor. They were in rural areas, whatever. Now, I think we're all using it, but we expect more from it. We expect it to be more personal. We expect it to have better records understanding of me as a patient. You know, at the Venture Studio, we're, we're going through that right now. Um, one of the brands that we have in the, in, in the launch phase is a brand called Fluent that uh, we've worked close with um, um, you know, people inside our organization, the VaynerMedia Group, to bring to uh, bring to the marketplace that is, a, you know, we we saw during the early days of um, March the category just being wiped out, where people were just buying everything they could find in the cough, cold, flu, sinus, acetaminophen category, all things that could keep them well, and they didn't really have an understanding of even what they had. Do I have the common cold? Do I have influenza? Which strain of influenza do I have? Do I have COVID? You hear all these little things about what, well, you know, can you smell? You know, you know, do you feel like eating? All these different things that might lead to different places. But telemedicine is a, such a great way to diagnose, understand exactly what you have with that interaction with a professional and then be sent to a brand. But if that brand isn't digitally native and doesn't provide you the ability to buy it online and have it shipped to your house in an hour in a big city, you know, overnight at minimum in a rural area, then it's still all on the, the, the back end of that is still on you as a customer. So while the telemedicine experience might have been, oh, great, I should just I should go get Tamiflu. Now it's I got to figure out how to get Tamiflu. And so Fluent is the first brand we believe that will actually close that entire loop. You'll be able to get um, diagnosed. You'll be able to have the telemedicine. 
to be able to get an RX or an OTC medicine and have it at your door without leaving the comfort of your home in an hour. I have definitely been that person Googling, do I have allergies or COVID? Uh, multiple times over the last few months. Jeff, I understand that hims and hers signals the opportunity in telemedicine and e-com. It was a special way of doing a financing. So I would love for you to talk more about how these D2C brands are getting financed. And does this also signal that we're in a bubble that's about to get popped? You know, I'll, I'll go backwards on my answer. I don't think it's about to get popped anytime soon. I think there's um, enough dry powder money out there that needs to head towards investment. You know, there's been enough money raised that is looking for a home to get a return. Um, and, they, you know, those, those people expected a return on it. I think it's a particularly innovative way to do it, though. Being able to take a company public without the long process and the the massive amount of, uh, I'll call it internal work that has to go on, um, a lot of the paperwork, a lot of the bureaucracy, but a lot of the due diligence to get to a public market in, in what what could take six months, nine months, isn't necessarily the runway for many of these. The special purpose acquisition companies allow companies to go public without really going through that traditional IPO process, long process, but in a private equity type transaction that really leverages the ability to move forward with funding and growth. So I think I think it's here for some time. Uh, you know, I think like all things in this space, it'll evolve. But I think it's particularly great for companies like a Hims and Hers or companies like a Harry's or whatever that could, you know, find their next step forward of growth um, through a SPAC and, um, and, and get going on it sooner rather than later. That's super insightful. Thank you. Rachel, I think it's time. It's time, though. I feel like I could talk to Jeff forever. I feel like now I'm the bad guy because I said it's time. No, we this is... Why are you making me the bad guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, listen, we're we're all in the same industry. We know the attention economy and we have a, a time limit that we got to work within for our, our podcast audience. <laughs> Jeff, our favorite question. What is the bravest thing that you've ever done, personal or professional? Uh, bravest thing. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, I look back on it. At the time, I didn't think it was the bravest thing, but I look back on it now and I think it's part of even the first question you asked in terms of you know, my career and how it evolved. And I lost my father to cancer when I was just 24 years old. I was a not really on a path of understanding what I wanted out of life. Um, it was a moment that kind of shakes you in a way. And the easiest thing would have been to go down the dark, you know, the dark deep hole of, of um, oh, whoa, me. Understanding and being brave enough to understand that um, all you know, the opportunity in the world was still there for me um, and to lean in against that and to believe in yourself when you don't have that traditional father figure that helps take you there. And so um, for those that who have um, lost loved ones and have looked up for, to them for um, inspiration, it's always a brave moment when you have to do it on your own. You have to take everything that you've ever had the opportunity to take in, in learning, and then start applying it and believe in yourself because you know, there's nobody to turn to that can help sort of give you that parent unconditional, oh yeah, you know, you're doing it the right way. Just keep doing, you make us proud. It's like, nobody's there to do that anymore in a sense. So, you know, the bravest thing was believing, yeah, no, I can do this. Um, I've got it. And, you know, that was the moment when I 
said that I, I'm going to do something with this light because it's it's fragile, and you can you can let it overwhelm you, or you can let it be the thing that turns it into your rocket ship. Heavy, I love that you've accomplished so much. It's so amazing how you've bet on yourself. And the other thing, Jeff, that I think is so inspirational about you is you had this huge career and then you decided to become a founder. And I know there's a lot of people in corporate America that are looking for that type of strength. And so for all of you who are looking to go out on your own and leave your cushy job, follow Jeff Smith, purchase Fluent, come into market, disrupting telemedicine. Be brave. Yeah, be brave. Telemedicine and e-commerce. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it both, Rachel. Thank you very much. Awesome. So I'm super excited. We have a man that I've always wanting to talk to because he has such great perspective. Paul Gelb, the head of digital activation and investment at Bayer. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you for the kind words. Really excited to be part of the discussion today. You know, we were catching up pre-show. You were talking about your commute and when you were on the other side of the table. And you have such a unique background for someone who's a CPG executive. You know, you were agency, ad tech, you were at a platform. Now you're brand side. What's the through line in your career story here? My career path has been called unique. Um, I've been called worse things than, uh, than that. But my, my career really focused on a, a trend that I had seen, a very long trend. And, and now working for a company that started at the beginning of the industrial revolution is, is I think, uh, kind of ironic. But I'd always thought that this time was where the, there's be a marketing transition and revolution. And it was on the back of initially manufacturing and then administrative tests and then finance as you look at how the financial markets have gone global, but that for the next 10, 20 years, there'd be this revolution in marketing. And so I just wanted to make sure I was somewhere in the center of it with the smartest people doing the most interesting things and making that transition. So started with the agency and the buy side, went to the exchange and the publisher side, data, and now finally uh, the actual ad buyer. It's funny, we all share a common thread, brand side, agency side, vendor side, you know, for Sarah, she's on the board of Campbell's. Very similar perspectives. Yeah, it's bizarro. But I got to tell you, I, and I think that manifests itself in your career, that diversity of background really creates a high degree of empathy and probably makes you a hell of a lot better at your job. Absolutely. I think having had all those experiences, there's a ton of, of empathy learned. At one point at Mopub, what I pushed for was having this rotational program where we made sure we had a couple of people from the, the sales business side in New York working in our San Francisco office next to the engineers and vice versa, just to be part of that conversation, see what people do. So it wasn't like you throw something over at engineering and they'll just fix it. It's as easy as that. Or why can't you just get people to buy this? It's a great thing. So having seen those different parts of the companies as well as the roles and function is great learning and development. Yeah. Job swapping is one of the best ways to gain empathy, but there is no substitute for the kind of experience that you've had. But I can't imagine that anything prepared you for the experiences that you're having this year. I'm just curious to hear how does that affect Bayer as a whole and your role sitting at the epicenter of digital? When I came to Bayer, it was this amazing opportunity for me to take what was a bit of niche expertise or, or really technical expertise in advertising 
and apply to something bigger and something bigger that was different than what I'd heard at a lot of startups and tech companies that that tried to or even have tied their business to a, a larger mission. It was clear and in front. This is a, a company that is trying to find a way that there's accessibility for healthcare for all, that there's nutrition and, and food for all, and looking 30, 50 years down the line at the potential shortages of access to both nutrition and, and healthcare and to apply what I do and to educate people and to really drive towards that mission was a rewarding and unique experience even before COVID. Once COVID happened, that became even more relevant and, and important to me. I don't know that I could have ever prepared for it, but I was excited and I think privileged to have the responsibility to be in this position to work on these things in this in this environment. From an actual shopper standpoint, when it comes to you know buying OTC products pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic, what have you seen? What we saw is that any trend that was happening, and particularly with digital changes that catalyst to how people are, are doing shopping and other things, was just ramped up exponentially during COVID. So it really took existing trends and made it move that much faster. What we were really concerned about was making sure that we were flexible and had the agility to adjust that, to adjust to where our, our consumers are, to adjust to where the needs are, and to reach them and educate them about where these really important products were in terms of, of self-care during this time. The agility is uh, incredibly remarkable for a company of your size. Maybe a combination of a short-term and a long-term follow-up, or just at least looking back. I mean, digital transformation has been going on in theory for 20 years, but about 10 years ago, there was a major shift in terms of who had control of the brand, the consumer or the brand, right? It was also the relationship between the consumer and brand was getting much more direct without the retailer intervention. That also allows you to build a direct relationship, first party data, all that great stuff. Now with the increase of D2C over the past few years and, and the uptick there, where do you see the role of first party data in D2C as it relates to your business overall? I think it's a, a great question. I would, I would start by taking to me one step back and just how amazing our retail partners are, at least the ones that I get to work with and brought in with our, our retail sales teams. And they are, are truly partners. And what's really been probably the most exciting part of what I work on now is some of the discussions around media and insights and how to create the best experience together for consumers and and really do the right thing in terms of, of education during times of, of COVID, but also of making sure product is uh, is available and that we're all we're operating together in, in new ways and better ways where everyone benefits. And the pie is and the potential of what we can do together has never been larger. In terms of, of, of D2C, being in this industry and understanding data is extremely important for the next X number of years and the difference between first party data, second party, third. And what you can obviously see is the biggest, most powerful, most successful companies in the world right now all have an enormous amount of first party data and have been able to leverage that across their business and business units. Understanding that higher picture is, is where we want to start. I couldn't agree with you more. I like to say when you give up your first party data, you give up your brand. 
it makes so much sense to me why Bayer hired you because they had the foresight to understand that retailers were about to become the next major media platforms. And you alluded to it, the platforms are also becoming commerce channels. Given your expertise in media and how traditional CPG companies used to separate brand engagement media dollars from trade media dollars, now this whole world is coming together. How do you suggest companies organize themselves when it comes to full funnel media? And how do you even work with agency partners in this world? That is a fantastic question. I've been beyond blown away in terms of how just in the last two years we've broken down silos at, at Bayer and ones that, that were definitely common in the industry uh, and had been built out up over years and years, came down really, really quickly at, at Bayer. And I, I give a lot of credit to leadership that came in and had worked together at, at P&G and a bunch of other industry-leading manufacturers and, and brands and came in and, and had a culture that set the stage for the type of accountability, transparency, and, and candid discussions that you need to have on wh- where we should be putting dollars, investment, time, while everything converges together. And not all the answers are, are cut and dry, but I think the more you can get everyone's input and have the right framework and structure to start, have some data to go off of, and have the forum to have those discussions, for us, that's allowed us to, I think, get past some tension or challenges that others have had and really consistently make uh, the best decision possible and, and learn as we go. Even getting more specific, you start looking at, you know, brand investments versus trade investments. There's turf wars. Like, can you get a little more granular about, like, how, how do you inform making these decisions? How do you create bipartisanship, if you will? So I think a culture of, of trust and building relationships is, is key. Thinking about who you hire, how your organization works, making sure you're getting feedback constantly leveraging data and unlocking it and doing some of that unsexy work while others are, you know, chasing the latest sexy thing on, on a conference stage or, or that may be perceived as, as high impact. And while branding those experiences are agreed how there's value that of making sure you're, you're doing the very unsexy work of data taxonomy and, and how does my uh, reporting sheet and what view does this person need? And what view does that person need? And how do I make sure that this data is accessible to everyone who can use it? How can I make it so they could do something with it that I never thought of? All those sorts of things, I think, prepares you for you know, each challenge when things are dynamic and moving quickly. I know you said sometimes focusing on the unsexy things is not where we should focus. But if I gave you a crystal ball mm-hmm. and I said, Paul, where are the opportunities in retail and media next year? For example, I work a lot in beauty and personal care. And my advice to clients right now is go all in on a strategic partnership with Instacart because food and Bev is showing up there, but beauty isn't. Where do you see the white space in retail and media and OTC 2021? There is a long amount of time in 2020 time between now and 2021. And You want to make sure you have the right relationships and partnerships with platforms that can open up a lot of doors. When you have that that relationship, as as well as you have the technical expertise that I think the the team that we built here at at Bayer on the activation side has, and the ways that we've always worked with our platform partners as a, a true partnership where there's a learning agenda for them and for us, where we have a certain 
level of operational excellence so they know if they're rolling out something the product is not there's no noise of execution when they work with us and we absolutely spend the time to make sure we give them all of our notes of what we learned as being part of that test and alpha those sorts of ways of working it will allow you going into 2021 to have partnerships uh, that are going to be pivotal to continuing to be successful all right final question paul what is the bravest thing that you've ever done, personal or professional? Leaving my more corporate job for a startup with a wife and likely first kid uh, uh, that's going to be shortly after and taking that plunge to be employee 25 or, or 30 and see what I can do in, in that space and building something. It's something I'd never done before and it wasn't like I was on my own. How'd your wife feel about it? She was more comfortable with it than I was. So she was more, we, were, we weren't married that long. So she was, uh, I think she was more bullish on me at that point in, in time. But not, and I'll joke, she was, she was excited about it and thought that I would be able to do it and learn a ton and thought it wasn't, it wasn't a bad decision at all. I love happy endings. Well, Paul, thank you. It's really amazing to hear you speak about Bayer. You can tell that you have a lot of heart for the culture. And to think that a behemoth like Bayer has the agility that you're describing is really impressive. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity to be part of this. Love uh, the content you guys are, are putting out there. And, and yes, that incredibly thankful. Just the opportunities that Bayer has, has given me and, and the team and, and the faith and support and resources. So I uh, could not be more thankful and, and humbled there. Great job. All right, we did it. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of True, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.